Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. I'm a 25-year Wall Street analyst who's taken on a secret identity, gone underground, in order to provide my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen me on TV, you've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unfiltered thoughts on the air, so I've disguised my voice so they'll never know. This week... I look at the January 15th, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey, and uh, please see all uh, the caveats at www.thevalueguys.com. Um, if you listened to last week's show, you know that uh, uh, we've gone to a little different format here on the Value Guys. For one, um, this is Val, and uh, as always, you're going to get three top-notch value ideas this week from Val. Um, but I've moved to the West Coast. Not that anyone cares. It's a little personal. But I have, and so I've got these logistics problems, and so I'm just doing the show uh, by myself. And it's a little different, but, um, you know, we're going to have, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, le less less banter. So I'm just bantering with myself now. But uh, I'm still reading Value Line. I'm still having adult beverages and um, out here, though, uh, I find it's a little different uh, pace. So um, I've got some time on my hands. You know, my commute's shorter. You know, I'm kind of a train guy. I'm used to long rides, and now it's short. So I just have extra time. I've actually I've started a blog. So for those of you that kind of like getting the three ideas, you don't know where they are in the show, and it's sort of annoying that you have to listen through a bunch of annoying chatter to get to the stocks, and then you want to look at them yourself, which I completely understand. Uh, I've started a blog at, here's the uh, address, valuelineobserver.thevalueguys.com. And what I'm going to do is just put up summaries of the three stocks I talk about. I did it last week for the first time, and so I'll try to do it again today. And that way, uh, if you're, you know, a little time constrained, let's say, you know, you don't have all the time in the world who does, you go there, you read that, it takes four minutes, even less, you know. You can usually decide within a couple of sentences if you want to keep reading. Whereas here, you're just, you're waiting, what's tickers? I mean, I haven't even told you this week what the tickers are. If you go to that site, you'll already be looking at the tickers. So that's my point. So I've started that up. And... Uh, and then uh, I, I also started a different thing, just, again, a lot of time on my hands, that I've called Stock Rant. So uh, if you Google up Stock Rant, uh, Val Hughes, then there's this other thing that, uh, you know, it's a few things in there about stocks I get mad about. So um, I guess uh, the key caveat is that this show is for entertainment purposes only. I may have a lot of conflicts of interest. I am a professional during the week, but here this is a hobby. I've probably at this point had several adult beverages, I can assure you that I have. And so, uh, you know, this is uh, meant to be more for entertainment purposes. C certainly do your own work and all that. Now, um, in the new uh, format of the show, I've sort of promised a rant. I'm not promised, that's too strong, but I'm going to offer up a rant. And there's a lot of stuff in the news that gets people going, including me. And so... Um, I I don't really prepare in advance for this at all because, uh, you know, that would probably ruin it in the sense it would seem like work. So, but, you know, you read the paper and things upset you. 
So here's my rant for the week, Val Hughes' rant, which is a tax on banks? What? So that would be the title, tax on banks. Um, I understand we're going to have this responsibility tax where those parties responsible for the financial crisis have to pay it back, um, and so I guess we're taxing the banks because they're responsible. What I have a rant about at this point is that is so completely wrong that someone needs to just point it out. I'm sure more people than I do and people that understand it better. But here's the point. It's the government itself that's the cause of the financial crisis. Uh, they're interfering in um, you know the, the marketplace for mortgages. Uh, they're encouraging lending to those types of people that banks might say aren't credit worthy, and yet the, the government presses on them to loan to lower income people. And then uh, to make sure it's happening, Freddie uh, Mac and Fannie Mae, of course, many listeners know this, have the largest market for secondary mortgages in the world. And so they, in effect, bought all these mortgages that were made. I don't believe Freddie and Fannie make mortgages. The mortgages are made by banks. And when they do their normal credit analysis, they might turn a, a, a borrower away. But the government wants those borrowers to get a loan, so they have minimum standards. And I forget there's a name for this. Uh, if your loan matches the standards of Freddie and Fannie, it's uh, conforming, I guess. That's the word, conforming. So if the loan's conforming, they pool it up, and then the bank can sell it to Freddie and Fannie, and that purchase of those loans got it off the bank's books. It encouraged bankers to make a lot of loans because they made a fee on the loan as if they were selling it. And then it went to Freddie and Fannie. This was Freddie and Fannie encouraging these loans. It wasn't the banks encouraging the loans. If they didn't have a marketplace to sell the loans to and they had these on their own books, they would not have made these loans. So when you try to get to the root of the problem, you can dig down into the biggest marketplace for mortgages, buying mortgages from the banks that originated them, and that's Freddie and Fannie. So it's not the banks. I'd point out that if you tax the banks, these are the banks in many cases that didn't want any help from the government. You know, there were a few that needed it. Uh, capitalists, of course, wanted the, the banks to fail because failing banks encourages other banks to be more careful. That's at the root of why a system that had so many banks for so many years was successful in that um, bankers had their own punishment if they didn't make good loans, and that was they were out of business. And so I think in, in recent years, uh, what you've had is banks that in, are encouraged to take more risk, including all the banks I just mentioned that made riskier loans than they might like to sell them to Freddie and Fannie. But now you're going to tax those banks um, that are making the loans that the government's encouraging them to make, and you're punishing banks that didn't take the help from the government. Those that really were at the root of the crisis, Freddie and Fannie, I understand, are not paying a tax. The government's just raised their capital limits so they can buy even more loans that are apt to fail down the road. And the other big recipient of government aid, uh, the auto companies, uh, have also uh, been e exempt uh, from some of these uh, taxes, including, um, I believe, the health care uh, taxes on uh, gold-plated policies, and uh, I believe the uh, federal PAYSAR uh, is, uh, is dialed back on the auto companies. And I don't believe they're paying the tax. I believe it's the, the banks. 
So my rant would simply be, why are you forcing the banks to take money, but then punishing them at the same time, when the biggest culprits of the financial crisis are actually Freddie and Fannie, which are not receiving any punishment, and we are rewarding failure and punishing success, which, of course, is going to lead to more of each in the case of failure, and that's what's so alarming. So that's my rant for the week, um, and uh, I guess I just take it a bit further and say that, um, in, you know, tying on to my rant of last week, healthcare. Evidently, we're cutting a deal with unions where they will not have to pay a tax on gold-plated health care plans, so uh, unions are being rewarded. And that includes a lot of government employees who will then not have to pay that tax, and also the uh, Congress itself, which is exempt from the whole plan. So increasingly, the government is, um, is uh, you know, taking steps uh, to enrich themselves as a government. This isn't partisan. It's if you're in the government you're a beneficiary, and uh, private enterprise and capitalists and bankers are not. So there's my rant. Okay, if you've listened this far, you're probably deserving of at least a couple of stock ideas, so let me, uh, let me throw some out. I've gone through the whole issue this week, and uh, yeah, there were a lot of banks, and I have to dip in there, so I have a couple ideas out of the financials. I think they're still... Um, it's just simply too cheap that the notion that the banks are repairing is not yet uh, really gotten into these stocks. When you look at the yield curve and you see that at the very shortest end of the curve, uh, money's cheaper than really it's ever been uh, under 1%. And at the rate banks can loan at, um, you know, it's it's in the 5 6%. So the spread on that for banks is as high as it's ever been course the volumes aren't there and that's one of the things that I quite you know honestly believe it will repair as we move forward as the wheels of commerce sort of free up so I've got a uh, a bank idea this week and then I've got a uh, you know big issue on pharmaceuticals I've got um, I've got a pharmaceutical I've got a big list of pharmaceuticals here that um, you know it's hard to choose among them all their patents are melting away um, but the three I'm going to talk about are uh, Hudson City Bank Corp. on 1505. I do give the page numbers. Prudential Financial, page 1548. And Endo Pharmaceuticals, page 1597. Uh, or let's see. You know, he, here's the thing. I spent a bunch of time this week on FMC Corp., page 1579. And when you look through here, there's a whole list of uh, chemicals guys, fertilizer guys, looked at DuPont, Compass, and they all look cheap. Uh, they're all tied into basic industry. In the case of uh, FMC, you know, they sell a lot of um, fertilizer, and uh, that's a pretty, you know, basic industry, a pretty reliable demand. Uh, but the valuations, you know, these things are off the lows. It traded at 28, now it's at 56. And I think um, there might be a little left in these things. They're eight times EBITDA. And that's about an average valuation for them over time. So if you uh, believe that uh, the psychology for these is going to continue to get a little better, you know, there's some more in this. They don't pay much of a yield. And, um, you know, it is at the core a commodity seller. All these guys are. So you have to hope they have some edge in distribution or brand that sort of thing. 
But unfortunately, while all these are good base businesses, and we have talked about DuPont and Dow in the past, um, you know, right now I think you know they're not really getting me that going, get, get going that much as far as opportunity near term. So after I look through those, I'm overlooking at the uh, at the at the banks, and uh, honestly, here here's one I I own, uh, Hudson City Bank Corp. Ticker HCBK. It's a bank, obviously based in uh, in in New York. It, well, let's see. Uh, it's headquartered in northern New Jersey, but they serve New York, Connecticut, Long Island, and they are almost entirely in single-family homes. They don't do anything fancy. They don't have any uh, commercial loans to speak of, and um, they don't have a lot of real estate, you know, in terms of um, spec real estate. It's all homes in good neighborhoods, generally upscale homes. They require a big down payment. And, of course, the offset, the way they got any business, was they offered a pretty good rate. So if you were a terrific credit, uh, you got a decent rate at Hudson City, and the stock, you know, last year, as all banks, they took a tremendous hit. The stock got down to $7. It's now 13 The old high is 25 And, um, you know, losses are still higher than they were. We still haven't moved through the entire period of losses. There's still some higher-end homes. But if you're reading the news, um, you know, New York bonuses are up off the lows. Uh, banks are doing better. And, um, you know, that's directly affecting the uh, the value of real estate in the area and the support to the capital underlying the banks. So, you know, it looks like uh, things are, are definitely getting better. The stock has recovered, but it's still selling at um, a premium to book that's quite a bit less than it traditionally sells. The book value right now, and this is, I think, how you have to look at a bank, book value per share, and then you make your judgments about whether the book value is is good or not. Of course, a lot of banks have had big hits to book in the last year, um, bigger than you know people expected, certainly bigger than they expected. Reserves have had to go up, and earnings have been crushed. But, um, you know, what you have to, uh, I guess, study at a bank is what's going on with the business you're writing right now. One of the reasons loans aren't being written is in part because the credit uh, requirements have really been tightened up. And the last 12 months or 24 months for most businesses isn't that good. So you can't yell at the banks for not, you know, uh, being conservative and at the same time um, yell at them for not making loans because most customers right now, you know, don't have a recent history that looks that good because the economy hasn't been that good. So you do have a little chicken and egg thing. you got to work your way out of it. And I think when you see incomes going up, um, you see stability in the job market. You know, you see GDP turning up. Uh, we are going to uh, have an inventory um, improvement almost certainly during 2010 in terms of um, you know, looking at comparisons over last year that almost have to be up because sales are flat to up and inventories were cut to the bone last year and will have to be flat to up uh, this year. So there's going to be a lot of positive momentum in terms of uh, you know, the, the balance sheet at banks and the perceived credit worthiness of the underlying loan. So right now, Hudson City is trading at a, uh, let's see, the book is 10 predicted for next year, stock at 13.5, 30% premium. 
and traditionally um, well I'm just looking back here in most years the stock gets to quite a meaningful premium to book two times in many years although those days might be over um, you know one and a half traditionally has been the the low end we've broken through that the assets that are going bad are are starting to stabilize and that's the thing you have to be most worried about their profit margins have been okay um, they haven't reported any losses and that one of the things I like to look at is their mortgage loans per share have continued to rise so we're looking at ninety dollars a share in mortgage loans in 2010 stock at 13 um, four years ago they had forty six dollars a share in mortgage loans the stock was at fourteen so um, you know they've doubled their business and yet because of fear in the stock and I think continuing uh, concern you know the, the stock's gotten real cheap you have a four point six percent yield here and I think it's a, a bit of a put away I wouldn't put a full position in this I don't have when I have about a half a position in a lot of banks diversifying the risks geographically um, but this is one uh, that I like Hudson City HCBK okay let's see I'm sorry if uh, you know the sh I'm a little sleepy this afternoon uh, with the holiday weekend here and all we just got real busy with the uh, with the family and got out and did a few things let's see and uh, I kind of got a little late with the show so I apologize um, next up is one I have done before it's called uh, Prudential Financial PRU and um, it's on page 1548 Prudential is a uh, life insurance company one of the largest life insurance companies in the US they provide a large uh, number of uh, let's see insurance investment management and other financial products and services the stock was also just left for dead last year the stock got down to 10 I'm sure I talked about it in fact I've said this before but you can pull our code thevalueguys.com slash thevalueguys.xml into Internet Explorer all the shows pop up by ticker you can enter a ticker so and, and listen to a past show about that particular stock this one um, it was really left for dead because of the concern of mark to market. The balance sheet was getting crushed by, you know, uh, assets they had on the balance sheet where the market just evaporated. And so you had guys in the back room marking these things uh, to yields that they thought would sell, uh, crushing the value, which then crushed the ability to write insurance and it appeared to be imploding. I have said this before, but, you know, the, the government, the accounting board quietly reinstated or I guess reinstated an older mark-to-market rule uh, about, um, you know, if the payments on the loan haven't eroded, then uh, maybe you don't need to uh, write down the value of that loan. And that uh, affected a lot of these insurance companies where they were able to write up capital. Banks, too, but it was really important here. And the stock has lifted quite a bit from that time. So we're looking at a $52 valuation. Uh, I would note that one of the great... Um, anchors to the valuation here is a giant investment management business they have five hundred and fifty billion dollars under management and they're generating um, investment income per share uh... well let's see that's not the right number i'm looking for um, 
Yeah, I don't, I don't see it here. But if, if I can assume they're earning even a percent on that five hundred and fifty-eight billion, that's five billion. Uh, they've got four hundred and sixty-five million shares, so that's ten dollars a share in assets. Uh, in I'm sorry, in fees associated with that assets, that asset base, and the stock's at fifty-two. So five times the fee. Um, a lot of money management firms will sell three to five times, so you're almost getting the rest of the business for, you know, a tiny markup on the underlying value of the investment business. So I like that a lot about this. The PE is 10, um, and, you know, I'm not sure how to do an enterprise value to EBITDA on here because the cash that you might want to subtract in an enterprise value calculation, you know, is quite likely pledged as a reserve for something. And, um, you know, I wouldn't know that without doing quite a bit of work. Well, not a lot of work. You'd have to go look at the filings, which I'm just looking at a page in Value Line. Um, but um, I think that uh, I can I can certainly look at the book value at $56, stock at 52 This is a number that everyone is trying to make, uh, you know, the, the, the liquid value of the company. So you've got bonds and securities that are uh, increasingly reflecting the value they could be sold at. And, um, you know, the same with their liabilities. So... That's a pretty good number, and I think um, historically the stock does trade at a premium to book. In fact, over the last six years, it's traded at a 15 to 20% premium, and some years uh, 60 70%, but I'm not counting on that anymore. But, you know, it's uh, still a little bit of a discount, and I think you've got an underlying stock here that with a 10% return on equity will be growing the book at 10%, and so you get some type of yield plus growth here that... Um, you know, could be up in the high teens with a sort of 10 PE. That's one over 10 would be the, the earnings yield. And then I get a little bit of growth that I might estimate is the return on equity is the growth in equity. So arguably, uh, that's a 20% return to me as an investor. So Prudential Financial, PRU, page 1548. And now I, um, I'm going to do a, uh, an homage to Vern because he's not here. And uh, I'm sure it would be a much better show if he were. But here's a toast. Uh, we got a beverage break here. And I want to thank my my wife who made me a little drink we named in honor of the move. And we call it the La Jolla. And uh, she invented it. Uh, not, the, not the name, but the ingredients. And I don't want to give it away, but... There's pineapple juice. I'm just celebrating the holiday here. Okay, I've got one more. And this is one I also own. So, again, entertainment purposes only. So, I might, you know, be overlooking some very important element of the story. And uh, everything I say may be entirely made up. So, that's my caveat. But having said that, I want to say here's one I own. Endo Pharmaceuticals, ticker ENDP, and uh, it's on page uh, 1597. So this is an interesting area right now of pharmaceuticals because on the one hand, a few years ago, everyone was extremely concerned about the rising cost of pharmaceuticals. And in fact, uh, you know, a lot of people were coming at the pharma companies as they are now with 
demands for price cuts and rollbacks and this and that because they were making such enormous returns on equity and capital and their uh, gross margins were in the 70s, 70%, which of course is a you know giant markup. Um, so it means your cost is 30 and your profit is 70. Your cost is 100, so that's a threefold uh, markup on your cost. Three and a th more than three. So people were concerned, um, but now here we are. Here we are. Um, patents on a lot of these expensive drugs are coming off. So as soon as that happens, the margins go from seventy percent to ten percent, um, and um, and other people get in the business. So your uh, your your absolute volume of numbers of pills goes down because you're sharing the market with generic guys, and the gross margin goes down. And when when that happens, um, you know you you don't have as much money for R and D. And when that happens, you have a lower probability of inventing new drugs. So it's sort of a negative spiral, and um, you can see it in these drug company stocks because things are coming off patent uh, faster than new things are going on patent. And um, you know, having followed some of these companies and talked to uh, you know CFOs here and there. Um, the truth of it is, in many cases, the return to a pharma company is higher to hire a lawyer and try to extend a patent on an existing drug than it is to invest those same dollars into a scientist to invent a new drug. So, um, you know, you're seeing a meltdown in a lot of these companies. Um, what, what they can oftentimes do is simply cut the sales force and maintain, you know, a decent cash flow. Um, of course, eventually, you know, you can't keep doing that. Um, and they are, in many cases, using their cash flow to buy other companies and turn, you know, the proprietary nature of what they do into uh, proprietary around a sales force that knows every doctor and every office that might use your product versus, um, you know, proprietary around the laboratory. And so, you know, companies like Pfizer and Merck, Lilly and Glaxo, as you see the industry consolidate, uh, you know, you are in many cases saving money in the sales force and trying to keep it in R&D. And, you know, that's a good thing, and, uh, and that's continuing. Um, but I'll tell you, when I look through here, I mean, for example, e Eli Lilly, 5.6% yield. You know, maybe you want to buy that for a little while. I don't think that they've ever cut the dividend. I'm just looking here. I mean, no, they never have. So, I mean, there's a yield for you. But you look at what's going on at Lilly, and all their drugs are expiring. In fact, uh, their two leading drugs are apt to expire here in the next few years. Uh, it doesn't say exactly. Wait a minute. Yeah, after 2011, things really start to go. So when you think of paying 10 times earnings for something, you know, think about it. Even with no discount rate, you'd need to get 10 years of all the earnings before you'd get your money back. Um, and so in the case of Lilly, um, you know, they're not growing, so they're not even going to stay stable. So you, the question is, are you going to get your 10 years of earnings? Actually, in their case, it's eight times earnings. Will you get eight years of earnings? Earnings are going apps to go down, or if they have to buy other companies... You know, they might have to do dilutive deals because uh, they might be buying companies that have 
promise for growth when they don't. So that's the problem. Um, but again, I'm going on a little bit here. I guess the bottom line is um, the one I chose to own was, was one that, um, yeah, they have patents expiring too, but they had a little additional uh, valuation discount surrounding what I thought was um, a little bit of uh, controversy that's apt to turn in their favor. And this is Endo Pharmaceuticals, ticker ENDP, page 1597. One of the things I like about Endo is just its pure valuation, which is four times EBITDA. And what I mean by that is if I add up the whole value, I'd have to pay to buy the company. So all the stock at the price it's at today would be, uh, you know, let's see, let's say $21 times 117 million shares. I'm not going to do the math on that, but it's around $2.4 billion according to Value Line. Then I'm going to add uh, all the debt, $318 million. That gets me to $2.7 billion, and I'm going to subtract the cash, $500 million. So that gets me back to two point what three billion um, operating earnings, which is EBITDA earnings before uh, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. I can take Value Line's estimate of a thirty-five percent operating margin times sales, and I'm just going to say thirty-three because it's easier for me to divide by three. So that's about five fifty. I do the math. Two point three billion into five hundred fifty million uh, divided by is about four times. Four times to me says twenty five percent cash on cash return. If I bought the company for cash, and then I got all the EBITDA because I own the whole thing, my return would be twenty five percent. And then on top of that, I'm going to earn a little bit of growth conceivably, which Value Line estimates at ten percent. Now, what's the hair on? Uh, endopharmaceuticals that lets me pay this four times EBITDA, well, their core products, um, you know, they, they have, a, I guess, some questions about their safety. So their product, uh, you know, a portfolio is built around pain medication, and they do things like Lidoderm and Percocet for acute pain and something called Frova, for acute migraine. Now, I think they had some patents in these areas, and just like a lot of companies, their patents are expiring as well over time. But um, we've talked to management here, and I mean, I don't know any secrets, but what I do know is a lot of their um, uh, advantage at this point is built around their delivery of these products, and they can deliver it right to a specific spot on your arm or on your leg, and uh, the process by which that's happening is um, is a patent that's separate from the drug itself and I believe has quite a bit longer life or uh, built around trade secrets and know-how that other firms don't have. And it's something that all the doctors in the world you know, know by brand name. So, you know, when it comes to helping patients with acute pain, um, you know, are doctors going to start saying, uh... You know, Doc, can I get the Percocet? Well, uh, gee, there's one that saves, you know, about 30 or 40 percent off that price. I think you, well, uh, I'm in acute pain, but how is it? It's like, well, you know, it's uh, it's pretty good. It meets all the, I mean, that's nonsense. I just don't think that that's going to be a discussion. And even if it's going to be swapped uh, out for the uh, 
you know, the generic at the pharmacy, which some people do, the superior uh, delivery system, which might be faster acting or fewer times to apply, those sorts of uh, productivity-enhancing elements to the delivery system, which I can't describe for you right now, but I think it's related to um, how quickly you can rub it into the skin and how quickly it absorbs into the skin versus other um, competitors. So um, they have some advantages here. Now, the the hair on it was that um, I'm trying to remember exactly there was an issue with the safety of these products because uh, I think some people that were uh, provided with these medicines had an adverse reaction, and so the FDA was coming out and saying that maybe... Um, you know, maybe we had to cut back on the use of these products. Well, there aren't substitutes for um, you know, stopping pain other than this whole class of drugs. So the notion that doctors and the, you know, American uh, healthcare system is going to be without a solution for acute pain, you know, we just thought in the shop that was, you know, sort of didn't pass the grandmother test. And, uh, and so uh, we bet a little bit on that. And then uh, they have a couple of other... Um, more proprietary products that are coming down the the path, um, including something for hypergonadism, uh, which I know uh, is bad, and so and they have a cure, so you, you don't have to know much else. And uh, and you've got this tremendous valuation. The company has been very steady with returns, which again to me speaks to management. Um, because they have a whole portfolio of products that move in and out of patent um, you know, protection or R&D projects that look like they're going to do well and then they don't, etc. So having a history of stability in these areas is impressive to me. And you go back and you see a return on capital that's just you know, sort of in the mid to upper teens for 10 years, and they lever it just a little bit um, you know, to get up into the upper teens on return on equity. Right now, their uh, balance sheet, 19% debt to capital, and uh, the interest on that is covered 12 times. So I think that's pretty good. There's no uh, yield here, but, um, you know, I think that they are putting the money um, to good use. Let's see here. Uh, R&D expense. Uh, it doesn't tell me. I don't know. But they've got a 35% operating margin, a 15% net margin. So, you know, maybe R&D is, who knows, 10, 10% of, or 8 to 10% of sales. Endo Pharmaceuticals, ticker ENDP. And uh, that's all I have this week, everybody. That's been another edition of the Value Line Observer. Check out the blog at valuelineobserver.thevalueguys.com. And I'll look for you next week. Thanks for listening.